0: In this, the last episode in the series, I want to look at what it meant to be English, how this changed over the course of Elizabeth's reign. With the quelling of the Northern Rebellion and the beheading of Mary, Queen of Scots, it would at first glance appear that Elizabeth and England were in a position to relax a little, and enjoy would have been accomplished over the first decades of her reign. This was, however, not to be the case. Elizabeth regularly faced serious threats on her life, this of course brought about the age-old question about succession. There was growing animosity between England and Spain on the high seas, incessant conflict on the continent, as a counter-reformation and Spanish expansionist policies tore Europe apart, and increasingly drew England into European affairs. And of course, as we saw previously, there was also Ireland. Yet through all of this england emerged intact and in fact stronger than ever with a well developed sense of national identity and a rightful place among the leading countries of europe there were a variety of challenges to elizabeth late in her reign there were a variety of challenges to elizabeth late in her reign there were constant fears of assassination but these were rooted out by her trusted walsingham and the well developed secret service which he had developed Of course, anything was possible, and throughout the latter stages of her reign, Elizabeth was continuously haunted by questions of succession. All this would finally be put to rest by an agreement with the Scottish James VI. More troubling were relations with Spain? Relations with Spain had always been strained, both due to Elizabeth's Protestantism and England's emergence as a rival at sea. England had for some time had its eye on the great wealth pouring out of the New World into Spanish hands. English ships, often with the backing of the crown, have been attacking Spanish shipping and disrupting the flow of plunder from the Aztec and Incan empires, and becoming increasingly involved in New World trade. The English threatened the hegemony of Spain in a variety of ways. This began by forming joint-stock trading companies to tap the potential wealth in Asia and Africa, as well as the Baltic and Mediterranean. This system was necessary since the Elizabethan government was, for the most part, disinterested in overseas exploration. Although Elizabeth did, from time to time, provide financing and ships for some ventures. We also see a flurry of exploration in the last decades of Elizabeth's reign, with people like Drake and Raleigh and others all getting involved. And this also was seen as a threat to Spain. It also introduced people in England to the potential that was North America. Many argued for the practicality and necessity of exploration and colonization as it would greatly benefit England, and it offered a way to undermine the Spanish where it hurt them most. This, and the English involvement in the Netherlands, made war with Spain all but inevitable. As early as 1583, Philip II considered the idea of sending an armada for an attack on England. From 1585, he began preparations. His plans were based on the idea that English forces were weak, towns were largely unprotected, and that Catholics would rise up in support in the North, West, and in Ireland. He therefore planned a conquest of England, and this in turn would lead to a reconquest of the Netherlands. His plan was simple. The Spanish would meet up with a force in Flanders, harassing English ships along the way, and from there cross to England, march through Kent and seize London. Then it was just a matter of waiting for English and Irish Catholics to rise up and support. The force that Philip of Spain assembled was absolutely impressive 4,000 Spanish troops, 3,000 Italian troops, 1,000 Burgundians, 1,000 English Catholic exiles, 8,000 Germans, and all come together and assembled in Flanders awaiting transportation across the North Sea. These crack troops were to be joined by 131 ships manned by 7,000 seamen and 17,000 troops. With such a force, Philip hoped to at the very least force Elizabeth to abandon aid to a Dutch revolt, to force her to tolerate Catholicism in England, and to pay a war indemnity. The amount was initially set to attack in 1587, but this was delayed when Sir Francis Drake attacked Cadiz Harbor in April, destroying between two and three dozen ships, and later intercepting ships bringing barrel staves, for casks of water, to the fleet. England was relatively well prepared for the invasion. They began preparations in 1587. The militia had been undergoing reform since the 1560s, and was more professional. A tenth of the militia, which was men between the age of 16 and 60, that were eligible for service, were selected for specialized training, and this meant that just under 12,000 troops were very well trained. 62,000 militia were supplied with weapons, but had no training. There were 12,500 with neither weapons or training, but a good sense of what they were supposed to do. And 2,800 cavalry. The Navy was kind of a mixed bag. 23 men of war, 135 merchant vessels over 100 tons, and 646 smaller merchant ships between 40 and 100 tons. This meant the English ships were in no way a match for the Spanish but they did have one distinct advantage, long range cannon. They would use this to great effect. On 19th July, 1588, the Armada entered the English Channel, heading for the Flemish coast. English cannon and fire ships took their toll. In the end, the Spanish fleet was chased north until it rounded the Orkneys, only about half the fleet arriving back to Spain. The Armada had been defeated, The war would continue until 1604, as England would be drawn into the land war taking place across the Channel in the Netherlands and northern France. England could not sit back and allow Spanish strength to spread in northern Europe, since it would leave England extremely vulnerable. We therefore see almost continuous warfare through Picardy, Normandy, Brittany, and the Netherlands during this period, at great cost in lives and money. During 1589-95, Elizabeth sent 20,000 troops to France, 8,000 to the Netherlands and about 750,000 pounds to the Dutch. We also see an increase in privateering during this last phase of Elizabeth's career, although it was often problematic. The problem with privateering at this time was that it was not controlled by the state or carried out in the state's best interest. Privateers acted for the most part independently, which meant that they looked after their interests first. They were not going to halt the flow of New World silver and gold into Spain as that would take a large-scale coordinated effort with government support. So an example of this we see in Cadiz in 1596. The Dutch joined the English. This was partly financed by Elizabeth. 10,000 men, 150 ships. They launched a surprise attack. They sunk two galleys and captured two others. They pillaged Cadiz for two weeks and then set it on fire. On the way home, they pillaged Faro in Portugal, and full of plunder sailed past Lisbon and the returning fleet with New World silver. Their ships were full already with all the booty they could carry, so why attack some other ships? Philip in turn retaliated by sending a fleet from Lisbon equally as large as the Armada, but a storm ended the venture. During this time, English privateers captured over 1,000 Spanish and Portuguese ships, However, this did not weaken Spain as much as it might seem, and did not enrich the world treasury to the extent it could have, because, of course, everyone else took their share before the crown got theirs. The primary significance of this activity was that the money stolen from Spain was often later invested in the early colonial ventures, such as the East India Company, the Virginia Company, and so on. Now, These wars, this almost continuous struggle with Spain, was just one piece, albeit a very important one, of the puzzle in establishing the Tudor state and English national identity. By the late 16th century, the concept of the Tudor state had evolved significantly. And we see England now kind of being represented as a defined territory, as being associated with a well organized monarchical society. We see a sovereign government which recognized no superior in political or ecclesiastical and legal matters. There were three underlying beliefs influenced the development of the concept of the Tudor state. First, that humanity was divided into races, or nations, and they would compare themselves against the Spanish. Secondly, that the purity of the English nation would be tarnished by foreigners. We see this in the conflict over the marriage between Mary and Philip. And that the English language, law, and customs were the badges of nationality. We see this being played out in Ireland. We see that increasingly Tudor policies ignored minority cultures. The use of English was made compulsory for legal business, church services, and so on, as opposed to using Welsh, Cornish, or Old Irish. Indigenous communities of Wales and Ireland were granted rights of freeborn English, but only if they adopted English customs, language, and law. Legally, Gaelic Irish remained uh, serfs. Deaths were not a felony. They could not litigate in royal courts, wills were invalid, widows could not inherit. Basically, they were coordinated attacks on Gaelic culture in order to civilize and anglicize. There are other factors which contributed as well. The break with Rome and the Protestant Reformation, Henry VIII's imperial theory of kingship, anti-Catholic xenophobia which evolved in England, and again, we see this in Mary's marriage negotiations, but there's lots of other examples at this time and throughout the 17th century. We see propaganda surrounding Spanish abuses of power in the New World, brought on by readings of Bartolome de las Casas's account of Mayan civilization, how the Spanish treated them. So this all reinforced the tyrannical nature of the Spanish, as did things like the Inquisition in Europe. This reinforced the idea of the Protestant nation, and England as a just nation, which of course is somewhat ironic, given what the English were doing in Ireland and would later do in North America. In short, developments in English culture, language, Protestantism, and sea power combined to transform the idea of what it was to be English. There had arisen a new patriotic vision of England. We see this in Shakespeare's Richard II. This fortress built by nature for herself, against the infection and the hand of war. This happy breed of men, this little world, this precious stone set in the silver sea. So, over the course of the Tudor period, England went through many trials and tribulations, yet emerged with a new sense of national identity, with an idea of what it meant to be English. Which brings us to a question I raised at the very start of the series. Why are we today so fascinated with the Tudors? Well, there are many reasons. It is in part the larger-than-life figures that we've examined. Henry VIII, Elizabeth I. It's the tragic stories of people like Mary or Edward or Mary, Queen of Scots. And of course, there's a whole host of others at this time that you could add to this list. But it was also much more. It was a time of great change, of excitement brought on by the discovery of the new world, of new opportunities that came with it. With conflict on the high seas and encounters with strange and hitherto unknown cultures, the realm of politics, religion, geography, and general understanding of the world, people's views were constantly being challenged and questioned like never before. But this isn't the end of the story. There was more. When James VI of Scotland became James I of England in 1603, he assumed he would be welcomed as the English would be happy to finally have a man sitting on the throne. Such was not the case. He spent the early years of his reign listening to courtiers talk about Elizabeth's reign as a golden age. It is difficult to sport this idea, as the country still had its fair share of problems, war, disease, increased poverty amongst the lower classes, witch hunts, and religious persecution, to name but a few. It was also a period of increased prosperity, particularly for the upper classes, later years of Elizabeth's reign was a time of the Great Rebuilding, huge investment in grand country homes by the wealthy, and this created jobs lower down for carpenters and brickmakers and so on. As well, there were new opportunities for trade, with new goods such as exotic spices coming into the country. It was a time of Shakespeare, of art and refinement at court, increased opportunities in education and science, all brought on in large part by the spread of the printing press. Yet this was not enough. What truly defines the Tudor period as different from what had gone before was the growing sense of nation, the English had acquired a greater sense of who they were, particularly when compared to the French, the Spanish, and other European powers. They now had their own unique identity as a Protestant nation, and with this they appeared to have a greater sense of purpose, it would take much of the 17th century, a civil war and much more, to work through the details. Some would argue that they're still working through it now with Brexit. But the course had been set in the Tudor period. The Tudor dynasty gave the kingdom stability in a time of chaos, moving it from periphery to centre stage, a stage it would go on to dominate until it was shattered with global conflicts of the 20th century.